I hope you're aware, but today is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Um, This is why the church uh, gathers every week because of the resurrection, but in particular, this is the part of the church calendar where the church dedicates to remembering Holy Week, which culminates in the resurrection, uh, Resurrection Sunday. And uh, the resurrection is certainly the most debated, uh, attacked, researched, questioned, doubted piece of our entire theology as the Christian church. And I would not presume uh, to assume that all of you agree with it, believe that it happened. And so uh, as we enter this space, I know that there are lots of you, myself included, who have lots of questions about the resurrection. And I hope you don't hope you don't feel afraid to ask them. I hope you know that um, for thousands of years, people have asked questions about the resurrection. There aren't answers to all of our questions, but um, there are answers to some of them. And so I don't want you to be afraid to ask them, uh, but I want you to, to, to just kind of go with us uh, as we journey together through talking about it this morning that regardless of where you fall on it or what questions you may have about it, um, history would tell you that there was a group of people thousands of years ago that believed in the resurrection with such certainty, with such eyewitness account that beheld a bodily resurrected Jesus. Uh, now, again, you may have questions for them, and that's fine, but there were a group of people that believed it so much that them believing it single-handedly changed the world. And so either the resurrection is the pinnacle moment in all of human history, or it is the greatest fraud ever perpetrated. And so there's this reality of, okay, I, I know you've got questions, and I know I've got questions, but we have to deal with this reality of history that would say, because a group of people believe this, it changed everything, changed them and changed the world. And so we're gonna, we're gonna walk into it believing what the Bible says about it, that it actually happened. And as we look at the fact that we believe that it actually happened, I wanna consider this. If it happened or since it happened biblically, what does it mean? Why does it matter? And does the resurrection have any actual, functional, practical power for my life? And I know... I mean, if you, I know some of y'all don't live here, you're visiting in town, uh, but Nashville has had a horrific two weeks. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, entering into this tragedy with folks, and it's not lost on me, it's not lost on our church here, the, the, the cultural moment we're in dealing with the fallout of this horror, that now here we are talking about the resurrection, which is supposed to be the greatest day in human history, supposed to be the greatest thing the church believes. And we've got this tragedy in our city and our neighbors and our friends. And I know some of you have been so close to the epicenter of this tragedy. And even if you haven't been at the epicenter, you've been affected by it. It, it, is, it has affected all of us. And so as we're staring at this tragedy that took place just down the road and the horror of it, and now we have Resurrection Sunday, I would hope that we're all asking Either the resurrection matters now, or it doesn't matter at all. Either we have something to to bank on, to stand on, to hope in, or it doesn't matter at all. Because here's what I've heard so many people, victims' families, families that, that that will have trauma for the rest of their life. I've heard so many people walking in and out of this tragedy that I've been with, that the the refrain of this tragedy that people talk about is how we all talk about tragedy from these last two weeks or our, our past life, is that I just couldn't do anything about it. I was powerless that day when I got the call. I was in the building. I was, I was in classrooms. Like I was there and I couldn't do anything about it and it just feels powerless 
to change anything. I, I couldn't get there in time. I, I rushed there and I couldn't. And so the powerlessness that trauma and tragedy make us feel is some, and that's not just these last two weeks. That's all of our stories that have grief and loss and tragic things in them. The powerlessness we feel in our suffering is such a taunt to us because our tragedy and our grief speak to us and, and tell us stories. And so the taunt we feel in the tragedy is sometimes more damaging than the actual suffering because I feel, I feel abused by it. I feel assaulted by it and I can't escape the powerlessness that I feel in my suffering to do anything about my suffering. Uh, there was a book written about 50 years ago, late 60s, uh, on, on death and dying. Um, and that's the book that, has, that first articulated and kind of created what we would call now the five stages of grief that people talk about. And, and, and it's, it's a very helpful tool. It's, it's just, it's not necessarily chronological, but it's basically trying to normalize when people are grieving here are some things you're gonna experience. Here are some stages, and you may go in and out of them, and certainly people I've been with the last couple of weeks are feeling all five of them at different times, and uh, it's just a way to kind of help people walking through tragic things to feel like, okay, I'm not crazy because people who walk through heavy things always feel this way. And it's helpful. It's full of wisdom. I'm no expert in them. Um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Helpful categories for people walking through grief and loss. I would just say that for the Christian to enter those five stages to deal with that, that helpful tool, there's just one thing missing. There's one thing missing that brings a power into the grief that a Christian, and I would say probably only a Christian, can experience alongside their deep grief and loss. That into the abyss of grief, the Christian brings hope. And I know, that, I know that when I say that word, that sounds like Hallmark Christianity. That, that sounds like Lifetime movie Christianity. Sorry if any of you work for like Lifetime movies, great movies, just not what we're talking about here. Like this, this feels like cheesy, it feels hollow, it feels like sentimentality that I guess I'm supposed to just use this positive thinking with these empty phrases that don't seem to hold anything for me when I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. And so if we're gonna talk about the Christian brings hope, but even the semantics of that word can lose us because that just feels hollow and empty, what is hope and what is biblical hope and what does it have to do with the resurrection? Well, hope, and this, this, is, this is hope in, in, in microwaves and hope in macroways. Like, I know you're hoping for certain things to be on the, on the brunch buffet today. And that's hope. Uh, that doesn't matter at all, but it is hope. And there is, there's like hope in any form on, on nothingness or on ultimate macro things. Hope is always a projection of what one believes about the future. Hope always deals with the future. Who hopes for what he already has? You can't hope for something that you currently possess or have. So we're all hoping about something that is out there over the horizon of our life. And hope is your projection of what that future may entail. Hope is not fortune telling. Hope is not claiming the power of your future in order to manipulate it. Hope is the projection of what you believe will happen in the future. And that mixes in all kinds of longings and groanings and achings, but hope is always your projection of your future. And when we're grieving, grief and loss and tragedy and sorrow, 
those things get personified and those things start speaking to us. And they start speaking to us in the place where hope wants to live and grief and tragedy and loss start speaking to us about our future. And they say things to us like this, there's nothing worth hoping in. There's nothing worth hoping for. All of this is always gonna be this way and the grief gets held right here where it's all we can see and it taunts us. And it tells us you don't have anything to hope for and you will always be drowning in the river of these tears. You will always be drowning in the river of this sorrow. This is how your future is going to be. And so when grief starts talking to us and telling us and writing a story for us, is it possible that the biblical idea of resurrection hope could actually come alongside that place and speak back? Is it possible that biblical hope is not hallow? Is it possible that biblical hope is not empty? What if there was a hope that could speak louder than the grief was speaking? So Jesus, uh, the night before he was to die, speaks into that place, speaks into the place of where grief begins telling me how my future is going to be. He's trying to warn his disciples. He's in the upper room. He's at the Last Supper. And he knows that the next 24 hours and really the next like 72 hours is going to be really long and hard for his friends. So he's trying to warn them. And he's speaking into that place where grief loves to write the story. And here's what he says to them. This is John 16, verses 20 through 22. He knows how sad his friends are going to be. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Okay, Jesus just promised something otherworldly, literally like from another dimension. Jesus just promised the transformation of our sorrow. Jesus just gave his disciples, and he gave us the hope of transformed tears. This is what he says in verse 20. You can throw this back up there. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is the thesis of what a Christian is able to dare to believe in the midst of sorrow, that we have the hope of transformed tears. See, we believe what Jesus is saying to us is that our tears, our sorrow, our grief, and our loss will turn into something. It will literally transform and turn into something else. It will start as a bitterness. It will start as a loss with weeping and wailing. But that place, that experience of deep grief and deep loss will undergo a transformation. It will undergo an alchemy. And what was formerly a place of only sadness and sorrow will undergo its own transformation and will turn into joy. 
It will be a redeemed and renewed sorrow. It will be transformed. The events in your life that cause your deepest grief, this is what Jesus is talking about. The places in your story that cause the deepest grief, Jesus says, will undergo a transformation and will become the source of your deepest joy. Okay, if you're listening, you should at least be skeptical. And at most, maybe you would be offended. Because here's what Jesus just said. He's saying that the places in your storyline that have ripped your heart out, the places that have scarred you and marked you, the places in your story that literally you think of your life as pre this moment and pre this experience and then post that moment. He's saying that that place on your timeline, that place on your story, he will transform those very places of sorrow and he will turn those places into joy. Jesus, you better back that up, dude. Because if, if what you're saying is not true, then you're cruel. But what if it were true? And if it were true, if Jesus could take the places where we know tragedy and loss and heartache and anguish, and he could transform them into places of joy, if that were true, would it be a place that could give you hope in the midst of your grief, if it were true? Would it give you the ability to look into the future and not only have despair about the future? If it were true, would it do that? If it were true, could it come alongside the story that your grief is writing about your future and give you real, sturdy, actual and functional hope alongside of your grief? Well, in order to help his disciples and help us see it and grasp it more, he gives an analogy, he gives a metaphor. He's like, I just, I just told you what I'm gonna do with your sorrow. I'm gonna turn it into joy. Now let me tell you about an actual human experience where something kind of like that happens. He gives this analogy, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus is saying, this alchemy of pain, this transformation of sorrow that I'm telling you about, there's a human experience that's kind of like it. He takes us to a delivery room, a birth. And if you've been in a delivery room, I've been in five, by the way, I win. Uh, unless you're you know, like a nurse that does that kind of stuff, I'm not competing with you, but I win against everybody else in the room, I think. Um, if you've been in a delivery room, you, you know this experience. You, you know what this is like. There is pain and weeping and anguish. And there is, there, there is, a, there is a weight of hardship and suffering going on. And then after the baby comes into the world, there's something now that overtakes the room. It doesn't take away the pain that's in the room it does add a joy to the room that actually came through the very suffering that was just in the room. The mother's weeping, the mother's pain has been transformed into the same room where the pain previously was has now been transformed into joy. Now, notice he doesn't say, men, that the woman's pain is gone. 
if you haven't had a child yet, um, don't say this to your wife. Like, hey, Jesus said the pain should be over. Like, that's not, that's not what he's talking about. He says she remembers her anguish no more, which is saying some, it's not that the pain is gone, it's that something else is in the room and now that reality has overtaken the reality that was just there. Suddenly her body, still in pain, still in anguish, she is now overtaken with a joy. Doesn't mean she's not in pain. Doesn't mean the pain is gone. It means that she is no longer dominated by her pain. Her pain is no longer her primary focus. Her pain is no longer controlling her. And it's not because she's got like a trainer in there going, all right, now be happy. She's got something in the room that is bigger than the sorrow was. And then it's a joy that this life is here. I wanna see it. I wanna see their face. Does it look like me? Does it look like their dad? I wanna see... What, what are they like? Are they healthy? I need, I'm like consumed by. And if you've watched this happen, a birth is like the most miraculous moment that I've ever experienced. And this transformation happens. There's screaming. There's literal tearing. There's anguish. There's sorrow. There's, there's, there's all kinds. There's tears. And then there's joy. And the pain isn't gone, but the joy has now been transformed through the pain. And now it's what dominates the room. It overshadows the room. It overwhelms the room. Jesus is telling you with this analogy that one day that will happen to your pain and your tears and your sorrow and your grief and your anguish. It will be overwhelmed by and transformed into joy. And if you extrapolate out the analogy and, 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 and let the metaphor continue to speak, it literally is that the joy that is in that room that dominates the space now isn't abstractly related to the suffering. The joy actually came through the suffering. It's actually because of the suffering and the pain and the grief and the anguish that the joy is now here. Jesus is saying that will happen to your pain too. Your pain will be so transformed, it will be so alchemized, it will be so redeemed and restored the very places in your story where there is pain and sorrow and anguish will be the source of the joy. It will be transformed into something else. Again, if this is true, and if we believed it or were held by it, would it give us hope in the midst of our sorrow? Would it allow us to imagine a future without despair? If you're comparing options, and this is what the Christian hope is, do you know the alternative? If Jesus transforming our sorrow into joy is not true, we're only left with a limited amount of healing in our grief. Because if there's no hope in our grief, then our healing and the salve for our wounds can only go so far we're only left with empty phrases like, well, I guess time just heals all wounds. Not true. Now, time may cause you to not be only thinking about your wounds obsessively all the time, but time will do nothing to actually heal you. Hope will, but time won't. Time can't. And so if, all you, if you don't have hope in your grief, 
then we end up for survival's sake, like prefrontal cortex survival's sake, we have to only end up doing things that end up downplaying or numbing or ignoring the pain because it's too much. I feel like I'm gonna drown in the sorrow. If all there is is sorrow, I can't feel all the sorrow. It's too great. But the Christian doesn't have to deny reality. The Christian doesn't have to deny sadness and loss. Christians should be the best grievers in the world. Christians should be the ones that don't mind crying every tear because we don't have to be afraid of the depth of our pain because in our pain, we are held by a promise that tells us one day our pain and our sorrow will turn into joy. So bring on the pain. I don't have to be afraid of it. I don't have to numb it. I don't have to addict my way through it. I don't have to use empty phrases I can be full of pain and full of sadness because I know that there is a hope that promises me that one day these troubles, these sorrows, as bad as they are, there is a hope beyond them. And like a woman having a baby, there will be a joy one day that will overshadow my pain. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of transformed tears. And so you may hear that and you may go, sounds great. Love it if it were true. How in the world do you expect me to believe that that's not just possible, but true? This weekend is how. See, the cross of Jesus, which we remembered on Friday at our Tenebrae services, Jesus' 72 hours after his upper room Last Supper with his disciples in our passage, after that moment, his 72 hours after that is a microcosm example of what we're talking about, of what he's talking about. See, the cross of Christ on Friday is the darkest moment in human history. Literally, like Jerusalem goes dark. That's why we have a dark room on Friday. Because it's the most evil event in human history. It's the violent murder of the innocent Son of God. And yet, Jesus, who gets swallowed up and drowned in wrath, judgment, and death, he experiences an alchemy. See, the pain that he and his friends experienced on Friday was literally and actually transformed into something else. And three days later, he walks out of the grave with holes in his hands. He's trying to tell them in our little section about the coming three days, and he's saying, hey, here's the reality. In my kingdom, there are transformed tears. It's kind of like when a woman has a baby. There's transformed sorrow, transformed into joy. And oh, by the way, I'm about to live through this transformation. This is what he says in verse 22. There's resurrection in our passage. The disciples don't get it. They haven't gotten it for years. But here's what Jesus, he's giving them a resurrection promise in this passage. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Yes, friends, he's saying, I'm gonna die but even my death is not gonna be the end of me. I will see you again. 
It's been said before that Jesus Christ blew a hole in the back of death and walked out the other side. That's the moment that his alchemy was complete. His sorrow and his anguish and his grief was transformed into joy because of the empty tomb. That is resurrection power. That is resurrection hope. And so, hearing Jesus' promise, understanding his analogy a little bit, and then having him say, I'm about to live this transformation, that's what holds us in the face of our deepest pain, that we would dare to believe that what happened to Jesus will happen to us. The cross didn't ultimately end Jesus, and it killed him, and it wasn't the end of him. His death was transformed into life. And so what happened to Jesus and the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that restored and alchemized the sorrow and the trauma and the loss for him and his friends, that same power, the New Testament says, is true for members of God's kingdom in all of the ways that our suffering appears to end us, even if it's gonna kill us. We're promised here that all of those places will be transformed into joy, just like Jesus Friday to Sunday. And like a woman having a baby, the pain that is seemingly suffocating us and that did suffocate Jesus will be renewed and restored into breaths of life. So the way we know it's true and it's possible is because it happened to Jesus. And one day it will happen to us. So, I hope you're asking, man, that sounds great. When's it gonna happen? When is this transformation going to take place? When, oh, it's, when you start to kind of get a glimpse of the Christian hope and what resurrection hope actually means, sorrow being transformed into joy, and one day this will be our story and the world's story, you start to go, great, let's get on that. Like, let's hurry this up. It's why one of the most repeated refrains in biblical songs is, how long, O oh Lord? How long? Why is it taking you so long? It's why some of the last words in the entire Bible are, come quickly. Like, please, how long? When is this gonna happen? I have no idea. But I know this, that the first fruits of a springtime means that a harvest is coming. It's what was read to us in our call to worship. Jesus' resurrection are like first fruits. That they're the first fruits of a harvest that's coming. And so because the first fruits have already come, there's a guarantee of the harvest after it. it it's, we did a sunrise service this morning at Severe Park for the real Christians. And uh, I'm kidding, kind of. But... Uh, it literally is why, like, I don't, I don't know when the day is gonna happen, when the sorrow will be transformed into joy, but I know that a sunrise means that the day is at hand, and I know when the day is at hand, it will scatter the darkness. Like, Jesus' analogies himself and the New Testament's analogies for Jesus' resurrection are these kinds of things. First fruits, the dawning of a new day, the firstborn among many brothers. Like, it's coming, and our guarantee that it's coming for us is that Jesus has already defeated death. These analogies for the resurrection are meant to help us wait for the day when it will happen to us too. 
But while the night is still here, until the sun scatters the darkness, we have hope in the midst of our grief. We have the hope of transformed tears. Psalm 56, which by the way, if you're grieving in general or acutely in these last few weeks, uh, and you don't have words, let the Psalms be your guide because they will give you words when you have none. They're, they're a great aid for those that cry out, how long, O Lord? In one of those Psalms, Psalm 56, the psalmist is talking about this and this pain and this heartache and this valley and how long, O Lord? And he says this, for you, O Lord, keep track of all of my sorrows and you have collected all my tears in your bottle. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. Do you know how physically close to somebody you have to be in order to catch their tears in a bottle? You, you can't be far off and do that. And the Lord is saying in this Psalm and several other places, he's so near to the brokenhearted that he can actually catch their tears in a bottle and that bottle's got your name on it. And then the promise of resurrection hope, the promise of transformed tears says that one day the Lord will take all those tears from your bottle and he will use those tears to plant gardens in the new Jerusalem. In the city and in the new creation that is to come, the Lord will take all of our transformed tears after he has done wiping every tear from our eyes. He will take all of those tears after the last tear falls and he will use them to make all things new and the transformation of our sorrow will be complete. The final few words in this passage of John 16 where Jesus is with his disciples talking about all this is, is the summary of transformed tears. It is the summary of resurrection hope. Here's what Jesus says at the end of verse 22, is that one day, one day, not today, but one day, no one will take your joy from you. Not even your grief, not even your loss, not even your trauma, not even your sorrow. No one will take your joy from you. Your transformation will be complete. One day you will not weep anymore. And one day the sorrow of night will be scattered by the day and no one will take your joy from you. And the more you have wept here, the deeper your joy will be there. That, that's our hope in the midst of grief. That's our hope. That's a hope that grief can't touch because it promises no matter how far down the grief well we get thrown, every drop of our grief will be transformed into joy one day. So it, the grief can't take it from you. And nobody enjoys wealth like a man who's been poor, I'm told. Nobody enjoys health like a man who's been sick. And no one will dance with joy like the weeping and wailing ones. The tried and tired ones. Once they get to the land where all is plentiful, where all is peaceful, where all is glad and where death is no more. It's the weeping ones who will dance the hardest then. It's the sorrowful ones who will know joy the deepest then. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray. Jesus, you lived through the transformation that you promise us. And so because of the resurrection, would you give us courage to believe that because it happened to you, it will also happen to us. And we cry out, how long, O Lord? And while we do, you bottle our tears. We long for the day. We long for the day when weeping is no more. So comfort us now as we sing about just what you've done to conquer death for us and how that conquering holds our hope and our hope holds us in these weeping days. Let's call this in your name, Jesus. Amen.